You never think when you strike a match. There's not enough time. You blink between scratching and lighting, and then it is over. Another blackened timber for the history books. And while most of us have moved on to the electronic variant in our kitchens, for a moment we held a piece of chaotic empire in our hands. An empire that carries on today in the shadow of a line straddling downfall and a suspicious demise. Ivor Kruger's legacy lives on every time you strike a match. But is that a good thing? My name is Kushal Mike. This is Scam Kings. Ivor Kruger's story is interesting in that there are two very different accounts about certain details in his life. Funnily enough, the core of the story, his match empire, is probably the only thing that the two versions have in common. Every other detail seems to be mired in some sort of controversy or hearsay, depending on who the writer is. This week, you get both versions. It is up to you to decide which facts to believe and which to discard. Here is version one of the life of Ivor Kruger. Fair warning, there are Swedish names to follow throughout this account, and my very Caribbean mouth is bound to betray me at some point. I apologize to all of Sweden in advance. Ivor Kruger was born on March 2nd, 1880 to Ernst a match factory owner, and Jenny Kruger in the town of Kalmar, southeast Sweden. The eldest of six children, he was said to have skipped ahead two classes by taking extra lessons. By age 20, he was the holder of a combined master's degree in civil and mechanical engineering. He left Sweden almost immediately thereafter to pursue his career as an engineer, and for the next seven years, he traveled and moved in places like the United States, Mexico, and South Africa. He even dabbled in the restaurant industry with a friend, American engineer Anders Jordan, for a short while before selling the business. In 1907, while working for different construction companies, he was introduced to the patented CAN system for concrete steel construction, which employed the redistribution of stress through a curved steel beam as opposed to a straight beam. This method of construction was a great part to offer, as it was alien to Sweden, so he acquired the representative rights for the Swedish and German markets and returned to Sweden to make his pitch. Together with his cousin Henrik and his friend Paul Toll, both engineers, Kruger formed the construction firm Kruger and Toll in May of 1908. He also formed the German Kahn Steel Company with the American Jordal. And when Sweden wasn't fully convinced of the validity of the Kahn system, he used an article in Technisk Tidskrift, a leading engineering magazine at the time, to help persuade Swedish customers to his side. In the end, he won both their confidence and their work. Over the next six years, the firm was granted several large contracts, such as the Stockholm Olympic Stadium, the foundation work for the new Stockholm City Hall and the department store NK in Stockholm. 
their business model was also quite unique. Ordinarily, the cost of delays would be borne by the client because the longer project goes on, the more material cost and man hours can be billed. But Kruger and Toll introduced a model whereby the cost would actually be borne by the builder and all the risk immediately transferred to them. They would guarantee an end date and for every day late, they would refund US $1,200 to the client in 1900s currency, which would translate to about $18,000 today, give or take. But for every day early, Kruger and Todd would be paid a bonus. One of the first projects that they employed this method on was a bridge. They finished early. Over the next four or five years, Kruger and Toll Construction would become one of the most sought-out construction firms in Sweden. But Ivor was never satisfied with just dominating construction, and an opportunity presented itself right at home. Between 1911 and 1912, his father's match business started running into financial difficulty. Ivor took the reins, and under the guidance of Swedish banker Oskar Rydbeck, he was able to revive the business by turning it into a stock corporation. But that was just step one in conquering the industry that would earn him his empire, his modus operandi, takeovers and mergers. Starting with his father's factories as a base, he founded A.B. Kalma Monsaras Tanstik Fabric, ABKMT, in 1912. Formerly managers in the older incarnation of the factories, his father and uncle were made shareholders, and his brother was made the general manager of ABKMT. The following year, Ivor bought more Swedish match companies and merged them with ABKMT to establish AB Svenka Fornar Tanstiksfabrika, or ABSFT, of which Ivor was the general manager. And over the next couple of years, this would be how Ivor would slowly build his match empire. This doesn't mean that his construction business was completely abandoned. In fact, by 1914, Kruger and Tall Construction was raking in profits of $200,000 per year and paying out dividends of around 15%, which makes the company split three years later quite interesting. Ivor decided to create two companies out of Kruger and Toll Construction. Kruger and Toll Construction AB, of which Paul Toll ended up being the major shareholder with 60% of the firm's shares, and Kruger and Toll Holdings, which became the financial holding firm. Ivor made himself the general manager and major shareholder, while his board consisted of Toll. Ernst Kruger, his father, and two other close acquaintances, a strategy of dominance by expansion. But the game is never won until you best the boss, and Ivor was more than ready to do just that. AB Jönköping Vulcan was the largest and leading match firm in all of Sweden. Initially, Ivor approached them for a merger when his father's company was floundering and he was soundly rebuffed. Obviously, rather than shriveling up to lick his wounds, he began purchasing smaller match companies as well as raw material companies. Kind of like that one family member that you hate playing Monopoly with. 
to the Swedish match economy essentially under his control, Volkan merged with ABSFT, and the union produced Svenka Tantsticks AB, which you may know as Swedish match, still the leading match company in the world. With that, Ivar Kruger was king of the match industry in Sweden. Now, this didn't just come by Ivar's manipulation of the industry. During his pitch, he overvalued his firm's position to Vulcan, thus resulting, in reality, the smaller company overtaking the larger. It was his first venture in inflating positions, and he added this too to his business model artillery. Now, you may be sitting, yawning, and wondering why I'm giving you a very boring history lesson in Ivor's position instead of getting down to where he scammed people. In which case, I would tell you, you zoned out. Go back about 10 seconds. Or maybe you switched off. In which case, this sentence should not really be running at all, and I'm merely exercising my mouth. But this is significant because of the time period. Not only are matches a necessity for essentially every function that includes fire, including keeping warm during winter months, but this was just after World War I, where countries were struggling to rebuild and the shift in economic power was gradually turning to the US. It was essentially a time of rebirth and this was an opportune time for power players to settle themselves in the reset. Quite literally, Ivor Kruger was one of the most powerful men in the world. The total number of shares in Swedish match totaled 450,000, of which Ivor held 223,000. Capital stood at 10 million, and they had just around 9,000 persons in their employ. Ivor was king of it all. He was so influential that he engineered some of finance's good practices employed today. The concept of the dual class ownership share came about through the success of Swedish match. American depository receipts were machinations of his mind. The concept of off-balance sheet entities accredited to him. And on top of it all, Ivor Kruger, through Swedish Match, was behind the popularization of the safety match as we know it. But why stop at Sweden when you can take over the world? In November of 1923, Ivor set his sights on the United States and was able to merge his American affiliate with Lee Higginson Company. Together, they formed the International Match Corporation. Through this relationship, they were able to capture the number one position of match sales in the world. Again, this is important because of the time period that this was happening in. Matches were needed for everything. Ivor was essentially done with building skyscrapers. The match game was his empire. 1925, the year of the biggest flex. Ivor's empire had become so vast, he was able to start giving loans to governments of the world for accelerated reconstruction after World War I. The conditions of the loan stated that he would be entitled to a monopoly of the match industry in the debtor country 
inclusive of distribution, sales, and production, in exchange for the income. Over the next four years, he acquired banks, shares in large companies like Ericsson, and grew his empire very much like that one family member that you hate playing Monopoly with. The Kruger empire was thought to be valued at 30 billion Swedish kroner in 1925. And this is exactly where things start to go wrong. 1929 was the year of the Great Wall Street Crash. This affected business for everyone, but researchers speculate that this event may have exposed the chinks in his business armor. You see, Ivor was a gambler, and because he saw Kruger and Tall Holdings as his personal property, he would regularly speculate with its money. To cover this up, he would move money between companies without formality and set up dummy companies to keep the numbers evened out. In March 1931, Swiss banker Felix Sommery was warning of possible bankruptcy for Kruger and Toll during a meeting of the German Ministry of Finance. Germany was one of the countries that approached Kruger and Toll Holdings for a loan. At this point, Ivor had no idea where he would be getting $125 million to lend as stipulated. Luckily for him, France repaid a previous loan of $75 million and instantly he had enough to make his first installment. But this is where Ivor's luck would end. He still had to find the necessary cash to complete the loan and to pay the now staggering dividend bill that threatened to overtake him. In February 1932, he turned to a well-known Swedish bank for assistance, but by then, his loans were estimated to be equivalent to half of the country's reserve currency. In order to lend him more money, the bank determined they would need to see a statement of accounts for all of his businesses. After careful examination, the bank determined that the financial position was not strong enough to grant another loan. He was invited to have a meeting with the chairman of the bank in Berlin, scheduled for March 13th or 14th, 1932. He arrived in France on the 11th and had a meeting with his financial counsel, Oscar Rydbeck and Christa Litton, vice president of Kruger & Toll Holdings. It would be the last time either of his colleagues would see him alive. On March 12, 1932, Ivor Kruger was found dead with a gunshot wound to the chest and a 9mm pistol at his side in his bedroom at Avenue Victor Emmanuel III. He left a note addressed to Crystal Litton which read in English, quote, I have made such a mess of things that I believe this to be the most satisfactory solution for everybody concerned. Please take care of these two letters. Also see that two letters which were sent a couple of days ago by Jordal to me at 5 Avenue Victor Emmanuel are returned to Jordal. The letters were sent by Majestic. Goodbye now and thanks. I key. End quote. Ivor's remains are entombed at Nora Begravlingsplatzen in Stockholm. Now, hopefully, you're still awake. But while the preceding account was a tedious version of events, many accept that it is the version that is much more accurate. But for a short while, there were additions to the events aforementioned 
including the fact that Ivor was actually murdered. An account written by journalist Robert Chaplin in 1960 is the source material for the slightly more thrilling account. It is said that as a young man, Ivor was a handful, intelligent but of a mischievous temperament. He graduated at the age of 20 and left for the US with $100 in his pocket. He found work as an engineer and worked on the New York Plaza Hotel among other projects. Everything in his work life matched in terms of being an engineer. Where things get sticky is how he actually acquired his father's business. Chaplin claims that Ivor took control of the match factories with the backing of a couple of Swedish banks and by hoodwinking his uncle out of his shares while his uncle was intoxicated. Thereafter, he went on to build his empire all the way up to being able to lend countries funds in exchange for monopolies in their match industries. Kruger is reported as stating that he wasn't a fan of accounting rules and felt that superior men were not restricted by ordinary laws. I guess that is why, according to Chaplin, he felt the need to forge $142 million worth of Italian bonds supposedly sold to him by Benito Mussolini's government. And when he couldn't stand his losses anymore, it is said that he, who never married or kissed women anywhere else, but on the wrist, because of his gymophobia, had relations with a Finnish girlfriend the night before he died. The next day, he shot himself, wearing a pinstripe suit. But this account has been debunked, and with much figure. In response to a 2007 article about Kruger in The Economist, a relative writes, quote, There have been a number of publications about the life and business practices of Ivor Kruger since his death in 1932. Already at that time of publication of Robert Chaplin's book, there were a number of books that contradicted the theories put forward by Chaplin. Also, after 1960, Several books were published that strongly questioned Chaplin's theories. At the end of 1990, previously classified material about Ivor Kruger contained in the Swedish National Archive in Rick Skakevet become available to the public for the first time. The availability of new source material, together with recent research, has led to the publication of a number of books that support a different view of Ivor Kruger. The work of Mr. Lars Jonas Angstrom has revealed new information about the circumstances of Ivor Kruger's death that casts doubt over the alleged suicide. Mr. Angstrom's work also challenges allegations of financial impropriety made against Ivor Kruger in particular that he was responsible for the forgery of Italian bonds supposedly sold to him by Benito Mussolini's government. It is very disappointing that you choose not to report any of these new findings in your article, which merely repeats outdated views of Kruger the Swindler, and that you have refrained from mentioning the other views and theories that have been put forward by renowned journalists and writers. I am of the opinion that it is remarkable that one of the world's leading economic publications can choose to base an article mainly on outdated material and without taking into consideration the research and theories that has been put forward both before 1960 and after." End quote. In addition to this, an article by John S. Trudell entitled Trail of Blood and Murder 
highlights several anomalies. Quote, if Kruger had been left alone, he would have done for Europe what the Marshall Plan did for the United States after World War II. Instead, Ivor Kruger ran into problems with several organizations, including national governments. The Social Democratic Party in Sweden was working hard to take political power in Sweden. But as long as the Swedish people were working and the nation was prospering, no one wanted socialists in power. They needed unemployment and chaos to enable them to take over the running of the nation. The Soviet Jewish government, under the dictatorship of Joseph Stalin, did not want prosperity in Europe, or no one would embrace communist rule. The Zionists were working hand in hand with the German Nazi party to put pressure on German Jews, forcing them to immigrate to Palestine. Since the world government was in control of all of these different factions, the decision was made. Kruger had to go. But it could not be a regular murder. It must look like a suicide. End quote. Depending on who is telling the story, Ivor Kruger could either be a virtuous hero felled in his prime or a villain stopped in his tracks. No doubt he committed a list of accounting irregularities. But given the facts of the two accounts that we now know, things are still a bit unsettled. In my humble opinion, the fact that he chose to shoot himself in the chest as opposed to through the mouth or the head is very odd, especially given the angle that you have to turn your hand to perform the act. Also, if he did shoot himself in the chest, why was the gun beside him and not on top of his chest? Okay, maybe on the chest would be a stretch, but the position mentioned is quite interesting. Another strange fact is that his suicide note addressed to Litton was written in English, even though Litton was his closest Swedish colleague. Why not write it in Swedish so as to further conceal his sin except to those who needed to know? Was he feeling that guilty? Or, either way, Ivor Kruger's death remains a source of mystery to this day. The effects of his life have regularized themselves, but there will always be some doubt as to who this man actually was. He created much more than he destroyed, although some would argue that the creations were built on rocky foundations to begin with. Still. The shadow looms over his legitimacy, and maybe someday we shed the light necessary to bring this file to a close. All we need is the right match. Special thanks goes to the authors at Wikipedia, The Economist, Newsweek, The New Yorker, and Dissident.net for their news stories and information.
If you like what you heard today, consider sharing the episode with a friend. If you really like what you heard, be sure to leave a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast streaming service as well. Be sure to visit the website turbulentbookwormpodcast.wordpress.com for the show notes and links to various stories sourced on this show. Scam Kings is a part of the Turbulent Bookworm Podcast Network and is written, voiced, and published by me, Kershaw Mike. Episodes are published on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Anchor.